when you look at our approach to company building, those real relationships are what are able to sustain through the inevitable ups and downs that companies go through. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? All right, today um, we're checking in with Brian Lockhart, the CEO of Bala Shoes. He was actually on the podcast back in July of 2021, and he's got a really impressive story. Um, He worked at Nike, came up with this idea to make shoes for nurses. At launch, they didn't spend any money on ads, and they did 1.5 million in sales in 12 days. From that, they went on to hit 4 million in sales, and they just raised their round of funding. So we do a check-in on how it's been going for him. While that sounds great, he's had some highs and lows, so he's very transparent on that. He gives really good tactical advice on how to launch, how to grow, and even his approach to funding. Um, in full transparency, we are a, an investor in them, so very biased, uh, but really hope you enjoy this episode with Brian. It's a big day because we're welcoming somebody to the second timer club on If I Was Starting Today. Um, And it's Brian Lockhart, who is the CEO of Bala Shoes. And way back in episode 26, Brian was kind enough to come on to talk about how he kind of left Nike to go after this concept of, you know, let's make nursing shoes actually awesome and shoes that people can wear for 12 hours so they don't have to wear Crocs anymore. In full disclosure, I invested because as I work in D2C, I see things that don't work and things that do work. So that was a fun episode where we went through the idea, how he came up with it and launched and raised that round. And what's really cool is it's going very well. And he emailed me like, hey, I'm raising another round. Are you in? Or or do you want to participate? I'm like, oh, wow. I didn't know I had to make this decision. And so we thought it'd be fun to recap, you know, his journey from idea to raising money and like what's gone well, what's not gone well and where he's at. But anyway, Brian, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Jim. Yeah. I want to hit on like the milestones that you've kind of had. It's like, obviously you like left your job at Nike and doing some other consulting work, had this idea, you do a small round to kind of test concept. It goes well, time passes, you have to do another round of funding and that round just completed. And that's where we sit today. Is that kind of the poor man's journey uh, of Bala that I try to put together? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, You know, we first came to market in September of 2020 via pre-sale. Uh, we sold a uh, million dollars, you know, worth of shoes in 12 days. We opened our Shopify page um, for continuous commerce in early January 2021. And, uh, you know, when you look back at our first full year in business, you know, we've achieved some, you know, pretty significant milestones in a year when we were truly testing the market. You know, we focused um, really narrowly on nurses in the United States and distributed direct to consumer. In our first year, you know, we proved the business could be high growth with, you know, four and a half million in revenue. We proved that, you know, it's a high long-term value opportunity because we did 21% repeat purchase rate. And that's notable because, 
most of our customers haven't even reached the end of the useful life of their first pair. So this is all customers buying to have a second color or to have a pair for an alternate use. And, uh, you know, even in a difficult environment where everyone's seeing, you know, things about supply chains driving up costs and driving down margins, we had 45% gross margin. And, you know, as we closed out the year, you know, we wanted to, you know, gain more traction before going to Series A. So we raised uh, a small seed round of financing at uh, one and a quarter million dollars. So thank you for your participation in that. And, uh, you know, it gave us runway, you know, through the end of this year where, we're diversifying our message to appeal to all healthcare professionals. We're going to diversify our product line, both by bringing more color into our core product, uh, the Bala 12s, and we're going to have a second um, offering by the fourth quarter of this year. And, you know, we're scaling acquisition to, uh, you know, build on the marketing channels online that drove our strength in uh, year one. And we're going to start adding new digital channels like TikTok and YouTube and, you know, now as the pandemic winds down, we'll finally be able to connect directly with, you know, our customers in care settings around the United States. Okay, you just dropped a lot of knowledge there. And I'm going to take a step back because you said something that if I'm listening to this podcast, I'd be like, stop it right now and ask this question. You did seven figures in 12 days. And that's something we got into in the, the first pod. From what I recall, if I'm trying to replicate, okay, how in the world did Brian do that with Bala? How do I replicate that? The strategy that I understand is you put in the hard work, you interviewed something like 200 nurses or 50 nurses, I can't remember, you get their feedback, you get them essentially on a list. And then leading up to that launch, you're partnering with people in the nursing community and, you know, seeding the product with them to get the word out there. And then you launch and boom, seven figures. Is that what you did? What am I missing if I'm trying to do what you did at launch? You hit the nail on the head with the start is, you know, we started by before we even started, you know, designing and developing a product or recruiting a designer to do that. My co-founder, John, and I traveled around the country interviewing nurses everywhere. And we talked to about 500 people before we decided to start the business. And that was a lot of legwork. But it was worthwhile because we gained not just product insight into like what was what would be needed to, you know, meet the rigors of a shift in a care setting. But also we got to, uh, to understand what it's like to work in healthcare. And then three, we got to meet a lot of different, you know, healthcare professionals. And, uh, you know, one, we did get to meet directly with, you know, countless people who trialed our products. And this was in March of 2020 during the early stage of lockdown. So we had large groups of people here in Portland who tried our products, gave product feedback to our original designer. And then, you know, we were able to grow really quickly through social media partnerships. I mean, there was one influencer in general who brought a, a large audience, was able to authenticate the product with that audience and drive a lot of our early growth for that presale. That's amazing. Did you at any point think about doing a crowdfunding platform like a Kickstarter for Bala? Was that ever a decision? And if it was, why did you decide against it? In terms of like a, a standard like Kickstarter. Yeah, uh, like model. a Kickstarter to either like just get some money in or even just kind of as like a, a PR move. Yeah, so we, I mean, well, I explored every funding solution out there. <laughs> <laughs> like, you, I mean, you, you know, it's getting the business off the ground, like anywhere there's green money, you know, I go to look for it. And we, we explored every option. And Kickstarters are really interesting 
what we found the challenge to be is that, I mean, the consumer experience that we wanted to create was a consistency in showing the brand, in defining how we interact with the consumer, and then having some sense of oversight of how long it takes in between the order of the product. And so, you know, we raised that we had to, you know, footwear product creation, you know, takes really long. Like if you're at Nike, it takes 18 months from initial concept to product being in market and asking a consumer to put up, I think, any amount of money for that type of timeline is too long. So we raised like a friends and family round in April of 2020 to fund, um, you know, early, you know, design development with the milestone being like proving the product is good and launching an e-commerce page. And then by having our own Shopify site for the launch, we'd be able to really quickly transition from pre-sale into continuous commerce. And it wouldn't be, it just wouldn't be messy. And so because of that, we were able to go from pre-sale in September 20 to delivery of that product in December 20, and then opening our Shopify site by mid-January of 21. Wow, that's really impressive, that turnaround of essentially three months to get the product out. So if I'm listening, you talk to 500 people and you're just probably like getting more and more excited as these conversations go along because you see the need. That is enough for you to raise the friends and family round. And that money is going to, is it essentially like majority of it going to like getting that first run of product and like being able to pay for the people that you need to pay for and to get the site live and not so much marketing. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. First round was all design and development of the product. And, you know, we leverage social media to grow awareness and our social, our, our whole approach to marketing in that early stage of the business was to bring transparency into the design process so that we could show our customers the way we're involving them into the process. So we didn't put any money into media. We didn't put any money into PR. We simply worked with influencers to bring their community into the process and use social media to be transparent and show them what was coming. So by the time a pre-sale was open, they had really gotten a peek behind the scenes for three or four months. And that was like, you know, their onboarding period. Yeah, that's amazing. So you you have this insane launch, which is like a blessing and a curse because it goes so well, but then you set the bar so high. It's like, okay, we said 1.5. How do you do in like on day 13 or 14, you know? And now you have to go from launch to growth and you somehow pull it off. You, you do 4 million bucks. But can you talk about like that, just like what you've learned over the past year of, you know, it, it, like if I take a step back, it looks easy. It looks great. Like, look at you, 1.5, then four, and now you're raising. But having talked to you one off, I know it's been like a crazy ride. Like as you look back, what have been like the highs and lows of that? Oh, I mean, can, can this be a two-hour episode? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the first year of running a footwear startup, particularly in a pandemic where you're not just getting a business going, but you're trying to build the right team and build culture and build structure and process at a time where people's lives are complicated because of the pandemic. I mean, you know, we, have, we had people whose children, you know, weren't in school or had six family members or could never come to the office. And so... I mean, that underlying current just made everything harder. And so like, I, candidly, like respect to anybody, like a lot of new businesses started in the last couple of years. And I think there's been some really big success stories and we haven't talked enough about 
just how much more challenging it is for startups in this space. So just like hats off any of us that are who started anything last two years, because I definitely empathize with you. But Jim, we talked in the past about how one of the most difficult things in footwear is that there's a three month gap in between when you place a PO and when you receive products. And as an early stage company, our terms of factories aren't as good as like the net 90 you might have as Nike with a factory. So we have to out we have to outlay a lot of our scarce capital into inventory early on. And you know, it's funny, I was just talking to another footwear brand earlier this morning that's uh, launching later this year, and they're asking, how do you forecast sales in your first year? And based on that one million dollar preset, we had really high expectations for our first year. And so, you know, we ordered inventory based on high expectations from that pre-sale. And you know, really the information you get from one pre-sale only tells you what one specific community of early adopters will do, not what the broader market will do. So we still had incredible growth, but when we started getting into some of the challenges that I'll mention in a second, we ordered a lot of inventory. And then when our sales didn't meet our original projections, we had way too much inventory on our balance sheet and our working capital was getting low because we had, you know, we had planned for such high projections. And so what I tell early stage, like year one founders, particularly in footwear, is you know treat your first year like as a test where your goal is to get to the end of twelve months with a solid cushion of capital behind you and good data on what you can expect and good unit economics, and then you'll be able to more accurately project. And because we had all sorts of ups and downs because of early growth, and it's funny like you read anything about like you know what kills early stage startups, oftentimes it's high growth. And, you know, we had a lot of challenges because of that early success. Number two, you know, there's all sorts of challenges that companies go through while teams are are, are building together. And so, you know, in the middle of of the year over, you know, some disagreement over strategy, we lost uh, our co-founder and our first designer, as well as an influencer partner. And, you know, that caused 75% decline in sales over the summer. We had to navigate a real cancel culture situation where, you know, our brand was really being hated on by some of our early customers, you know, on Instagram. And, you know, that caused all sorts of challenges internally with our team at a time where we were trying to build trust and there was all this negativity, you know, in social media. But, you know, getting back to some of the highs by the fall, we were able to really ground ourselves in some of the fundamentals of marketing. We diversified our channel mix and started working with more influencers. You know, we really focused on the consumer journey and leveraging paid media, you know, to acquire leads, but having really good use of email and remarketing and leaning into word of mouth to drive growth. And, you know, by the back half of the year, you know, we're doing almost 40% of our traffic in direct and organic. Our sales are up 97% since early September. And, uh, you know, now as we stabilize, we've got high single digit sales growth month over month for the last four months. So, you know, we went through some real challenges and I, I can't state enough how difficult it is to navigate just all the early drama that you navigate in a startup. And it doesn't just affect you business wise, like 75% drop in sales sounds really bad, but like working 24 seven for three months straight, trying to navigate challenges takes home personally as well. So it's, you know, it's, it, it can be a really difficult thing, but yeah, as we get to this year, to our second year, we've got consistent growth and a really strong team. Um, it's almost like I think some of those early challenges like battle test you and get you ready for the bigger challenges that happen in the next stage of business. 
It's so interesting because people don't talk about it enough. The fact that this amazing growth and success out of the gate can actually be what kills you because it goes so well. There's high expectations. You use that to project what you are going to buy. And then, you know, people's thoughts on the business um, as people on your team are exposed to different things. You, you, you can see different sides of people and, and whatnot. And it, it's just a lot to have to manage all at once. You're, you're building this airplane as you fly, right? Is, is kind of the quote. But another thing that you said that I think a lot of people need to realize is the fact that you're getting your traffic where under 40% of it is from paid and new customers from paid is so important to call out because I see a lot of D2C startups that have great growth charts when you're looking from a 30,000 foot view. But when you peel back the onion, it's like, oh, wait a minute, you're using all paid ads to like inflate that growth and you're losing money because it's not, as you said, like the unit economics don't make sense. And so by you all investing in that community, you're really getting a, a stable base of, of growth. That way, as you do paid, you can be very intentional with like, hey, this needs to be ROI positive as, as we're putting this out there. As you go from like this launch to trying to find some stability of growth and marketing channels, where is your head at and how you balance that? Like the short-term gains you get with paid versus investing in more long-term things or, or building community. Like how do you balance that? Obviously there's short-term needs in a business and we oftentimes will use paid media to drive some short-term growth. But I think one of the errors that companies tend to make is taking a technology approach and bringing it to consumer goods. In technology, many markets are winner takes all. And so there really is a race to acquire customers at all costs so that you can take over an entire market. That's not how it is in consumer goods. Like this is what I would characterize as a, a war of attrition and a focus on what is going to build a, a long-term competitive advantage is what really makes a difference. And so I've really shifted focus towards our early customers ensuring they're happy and they have ways to tell their community about the product, investing in community building. You know, we have uh, a full-time community manager who has built a group of 30 healthcare professionals who we work directly with to get product feedback on, to help us define our product roadmap, to inform our marketing and also be the voice of the brand in care settings. When I look at how I prioritize my time you know, as a founder, you're always thinking about doing the urgent things versus the important. And I look at, you know, in this business, I can focus on, you know, spending time with my team and investing in growing everyone here as leaders, because I believe that the things that we're doing now that have impact in two years are the most important, because we don't have to win the market this year or next year. We need to consistently grow in a way that is stable and helps us build out really solid unit economics and a solid like sales and marketing process that can grow and sustain. I mean, I think a lot of people forget that, you know, Nike was around for almost 25 years before they even went public in 1980. Um, you know, it was 35 years until Michael Jordan came on board and there's a lot of legwork that happens there. And so we don't have to reach a hundred million dollars in two years. You know, we might really first get going in like year six or seven and that's okay. Yeah, you're, you're playing the long game on this where I think it's some D2Cs want to get that growth right away, but that can come at a cost. Um, 
One, one call out on the community. So you have 30 people where you're getting product feedback from. Um, are these people also kind of like brand ambassadors or helping push like, you know, like spread the word and like, how do you set that up? Cause so many people talk about build a community and like, w- what does that mean? Cause I, th- I think you all are doing it very well. Yeah. And you know, it's like, that's become a, like build community has become like a buzz phrase in the last few years. And so again, that's an area where we have to take our time to figure out what, people really want. So, you know, we have a young woman named Ella who graduated Colorado College and she started as a full-time employee in July when we were navigating the social media fallout from this influencer leaving. And so we really had to recreate what our approach to community was. And she took the lead on like having coffee with nurses and healthcare professionals in the Portland area, having Zoom meetings with people nationally. Just understand like you know, what do they want out of a relationship with a brand? And from, you know, just like John and I did two years ago, from hundreds of cups of coffee and time spent building relationships, she found 30 people who really wanted to have a relationship, you know, with us. And that consists of her just checking in. Sometimes there's nothing to talk about just to, you know, hear how they're doing. And then so she does a summary in our weekly leadership team meeting and our weekly marketing meeting about like what she's learning, what's the the heartbeat of the healthcare community right now. And from that, we synthesize our approach to marketing, you know, where we're going. And then of course, you know, we, we hope these people tell their friends about the product. But I think the most important thing of this group is they're not like a traditional influencer where there's a, you know, a transactional, like, you know, we give you X dollars, you give us Y posts. This is a group that we're, we're trying to create a really good value exchange with. And, you know, just like I said before, have a long-term relationship with so that we're an authentic part of their lives that they see value in beyond shoes. And that, that kind of work needs kind of, I would say, however long it takes. Um, you can't put a, a date on it. It just takes the time it takes. Wow. So actually treat people like people and build relationships, man, as a a marketer, maybe I should do that more. That's really good advice. Um, Yeah. And the thing I'll (laughs) add to that is that like so much of our growth happened on social media early on and like social media is this like incredible drug, I think that can drive like incredible results early on. And it can also be based on things that are misleading. And so we've really prioritized in the back half of the year, finding ways to connect with people in a human way. And so if there's a a surge in coronavirus and that means sitting six feet apart outside, go do that. Um, If it means taking the time, you know, to connect with somebody and never talking about marketing or product, go do that. But real human relationships that are one-to-one I think are getting undervalued because maybe when in a, in a business sense, they don't have like the immediate explosive growth that, you know, an incredible talk video could have. But when you look at our approach to company building, those real relationships are what are able to sustain through the inevitable ups and downs that companies go through. That's really good advice. Um, I'm also, I was talking to someone else that invested in, and you're around uh, significantly more than I did. And um, was just really impressed with you as an operator. Like one thing I've been impressed by is you're running this company, like it's been around for 10 years and how you do planning and how you do projections, how you're really focused on building the machine. 
what is your superpower? Is your superpower an operator? Is your superpower a magnet for talent? Because for me on the outside, I, I see the operator side being something that has been very impressive. But how much focus has been on that? And is that what you kind of pulled from the Nike days? And is that kind of your unfair advantage? If you're asking about me as an individual, like I think what I do really well is learn and adapt really quickly. And that just comes from, you know, in the very beginning of my career, I was originally trained as a journalist where, you know, you're essentially going out every day to try to learn something new, synthesizing it into a story that your audience can learn from. And, you know, I, I did that job in like the mid 2000s, that industry was really crumbling. And so I went on this kind of 10 year journey to figure out what I wanted to do. And I was consistently adapting into from journalism to digital marketing, from digital marketing to banking, from banking to strategic planning at Nike. And so I was kind of learning something new. So I'm really comfortable being a beginner and learning quickly and adapting to whatever's needed. And I, I think that's, you know, one of the core skills to being first an entrepreneur and then transitioning as a leader from basically an individual contributor as you know, on a group of co-founders to a person like running an organization and trying to like build infrastructure. And so learning and adapting, I think, is what I do best. And, you know, when it comes to like running a company, there's this delicate balance between like planning and being opportunistic that... Like you're always just trying to be like directionally right. And, you know, it's hard. So you have to be ready to change. I, I do think that there is like, oftentimes if you look at what we plan versus what we did, it, you know, they're often very different, but the act of planning forces, you know, enables you to see opportunities you wouldn't have seen and to be opportunistic about them. And so, you know, I learned at Nike how to build a three-year plan for, you know, a multi-billion dollar organization. And I think from that, I learned the core skill of planning. And in this environment, I've had to learn how to do that in a way that's slightly more adaptable. That's really cool just to have that experience and at that scale. So uh, you and I, you came to Seattle, you and I had a, a lovely coffee together talking about everything that's going on. You, you were pitching, you're, you're doing your next raise. And you said something that really uh, hit me. You, you're about to pitch um, to these angels. And so I came up to you, it's like, hey, when you pitch, don't just talk about why it's a good company. Talk about why it's a good investment because people are going to give you money. And it's something that I think it made you really stand out uh, among the crowd. But well, well, actually, so let's start with that. And then we'll get into like the economics of like the, the amount that you're raising. But what advice would you give to people when you have like this idea or you have some traction and you're about to stand up and say why it's a great company? Like, how can you also say why this is a good investment? Yeah. And so, you know, I'll back up for a second. Um, one, you know, I, I would offer to people like get out and pitch a lot and be very comfortable getting beaten up. Like if I go back and look at like the first pitch decks I put together in like 2019 and like the ass kickings I received, you know, from prospective investors, you know, those were really good things to have had happen. But I would say like get out and pitch a lot, get very uncomfortable and be very open about learning. Because again, going back to like, I love to learn. Like I think I've gotten pretty good at pitching, you know, putting rounds together. And it comes from all the advice that I've gotten from people in the investment community. And in, uh, in our first round that you participated in last year, I had the opportunity to pitch to a group in Seattle called the Alliance of Angels. And I just love that group. I mean, they're, they're comprised of 
a wonderful group of people who truly love to help and support the next generation of entrepreneurs. And their process is after an initial pitch, they connect you with a, a sponsor who just coaches you up for the, uh, the next pitch. And I had the luck of being paired with Dan Rosen, who was one of the founders of the Alliance of Angels, now retired. And he really guided me on how to put together you know, a 10-minute presentation. And this is where he gave me the coaching that I share with you. And that if you got 10 minutes, you know, spend three minutes talking about why it's a good business. But what an investor really wants to hear is why is this a good investment? And like your plan isn't really what's important here. But, you know, in my experience, you know, take that for what it's worth. An investor wants to hear about like, is this a growing market? Do you have opportunity to pivot if you run into challenges? a clear assessment of the risks and how you're planning for them. And then most importantly, how they'll get their money back. And I think this is one thing that gets missed often is like what, what I found. And again, take that for what it's worth. <laughs> I, I am by no means the gospel, but to somebody who's putting together a round of financing, you know, our minimum was $25,000. Be, be able to really answer the question of like, you know, if someone's going to give you $25,000, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to get for it in return? When are you going to raise capital again? And when and how much are they going to get back? And like, you're, you're not going to be right about whatever the answer is. But I found you need to be able to demonstrate that you've thought it through to give people the confidence that you've done the work and that you have an understanding of your business and how you're going to get them a return. That is such good advice when thinking about pitching because it's so easy just to focus on your own company, but looking at it from the perspective of the investor. Okay, so that's really good advice on pitching. But one thing that you and I have talked about, it's like you see these D2C stories of like the Caspers, the Allbirds, where they go big. They raise a lot of money and they're okay with losing money, not being profitable. But that can really backfire. Even like Glossier went big. They just laid off 80 people. But then you have these other stories of companies that, that do it well, like the Allos, the Vioris. Talk to me about how you think about like fundraising, how much you want to raise, and any details you can get from that initial friends and family round to this round. Yeah. And, you know, at first, I want to be clear, like, I mean, there's a lot of companies that have started in the last years and had different approaches to fundraising. And like, we've got one approach, but like, I'll never be critical of like another founder because everyone's got different strategies. And so there have been companies who raised a ton and have taken an approach. And then, you know, when things don't go the way they projected, they've taken a lot of heat. And like, I just want to make clear, like, I've just got huge admiration for anybody who has the guts to start a company and take somebody else's money and try to do something different. Um, the, you know, the way I think about it is really long term in the sense that, you know, footwear's hard. You know, we had to raise a reasonable amount of capital early on, but I want to make it last as long as I can and get the business right before we take on take on too much money because how you spend your money creates culture. And, you know, right now, I just took a, a business trip to New York and I stayed in the Hampton Inn and I found the cheapest flight and, you know, I, I didn't expense dinner to the business. I paid for it myself. And, uh, my teammate who went out with me saw that. And if you've got you know millions of dollars in capital behind you and you're staying at fancy hotels and you're not really managing every line item, that builds culture over time. 
And so when I look at our fundraising strategy, a lot of it right now is about building a culture that we can scale um, that's based on being frugal, that is based on a focus on driving you know, a business that is, that is ready for it. And so we'll raise more when we as a business are culturally ready to take on a larger round and scale we've built in a frugal way. Because this isn't a race. This is a, a war of attrition. <laughs> That's really good advice. I've never thought about it from the perspective of culture. And as you do, you do this round of, I believe it's like 1.5. 1.25. 1. 1. 1.25. How long does that last? Uh, a little over 12 months. Like, mm-hmm. we, I always try to raise so that we have at least 12 months of runway ahead of us. Well, that's exciting. So you've raised this money. Like, what is next as you look about like what to do? It's like, uh, you know, build the team, get more products, invest in marketing. Is it like, hey, let's go wholesale. Let's sell on Amazon. Like, what what are you thinking through right now as, as you look to this next phase? Yeah, so, I mean, it's going to go back to, like, year one was about testing the market. And so, you know, we focused on the 5 million nurses in the United States who use social media and will buy direct consumer. And, you know, the headline for 2022 is scale what worked for 2021, that being digital media and social, and then diversify to, you know, reach out into the broader healthcare market. So, you know, making our product relevant for doctors, physicians, assistants, physical therapists, et cetera, double down on our community approach to marketing. And, you know, that not only helps us build trust with our consumers, but these are the people who are relevant on emerging social channels that we don't know about now. And, you know, in the not too distant future, we'll start to diversify distribution as well. I I think what we've learned from some of the most successful companies, you know, new brands out there like Viore is that diversifying distribution helps you reach, you know, new customers and is really uh, an awareness, you know, play. And so, you know, we're not just focused on reaching people who buy online. We want to reach them wherever they choose to shop and create a great experience and deliver on the great products where it's most meaningful to them. Yeah, that's so true. That's just one persona who's on Instagram to buy, but there's a lot of other people. You just got to meet them where they are. And you're so good with community. And during this pandemic, you haven't been able to have pop-ups or like any sort of offline installation close to a hospital or where nurses congregate. And I just think that um, that, that could be super exciting. Absolutely. It, it's been, a, you know, I get the question all the time, like, has the pandemic helped your business? Because our customers have been most directly affected by the pandemic. And it's created this chasm between us and our customers, candidly, where one, we're not able to, like you said, be close to, you know, where they are. And two, they're under immense stress to where, you know, when we're doing community building work, they have so many other things going on in their life that we have to be respectful of. So, it's it's made for a massive challenge for us. And what I see from that is we had to be even scrappier, you know, in our first year or two. And uh, there's lots of opportunity ahead for us. So you, you and I were talking beforehand um, about doing this podcast. I actually had to cancel the first time because our daycare closed. So my apologies. But um, you're like, you're like, hey, remember the blog post you wrote? You're like, you should bring that up. So I did a mm-hmm. blog post because you were the first angel investment that I ever did. I did a blog post just so I could, it was like my own like way to like, decide if I was going to invest or not. It was kind of fun to look back and be like, okay, 
here's why I decided to invest. And then here are my concerns. So I'm, I'm going to list them out. We can even hit on them. So yeah. why did why to invest? It was a validated product, seeing the traction you had early. Uh, the second was I did this D2C checklist because we work with so many brands and you literally crossed off so many of those. Like it's a painkiller, not a vitamin. You're, you're owning a niche, good average order value, high referral potential. And I said, the team, the, the team is, is very impressive. So those were the pros. Here's the cons that I had. Product quality. It's like you're making shoes. It's like return rates on shoes are super high. You're shipping them from China. Oh, no, that, that's a concern. And so that's an issue with the P&L, like how much money you have to balance. It's a new brand. You know, there's a lot. It's hard to build this brand. And it's kind of a it's not a super premium product, but it's, it's, it's a premium product. Consumer growth. Um, you know, kind of, can you grow outside of just influencers? And mm-hmm. then the team, it, it, the team has not worked in startups before. That can be a good thing or, or maybe not. And so it's kind of interesting to go back on those. So I don't know if you have any initial thoughts on that, the pros or the cons, things that stood out. I mean, I think it's way more interesting to go through the cons, which were like the risks we identified. So why don't we kick it off there? So product quality, overwhelmingly, we've gotten great feedback on the product. And so, I mean, that's a testament to the great work that our development partners did, that our factory did, and in that, and the, the great work that the QC partner, you know, over in the factory did. Uh, you know, we had some initial challenges in just the overall fit. Like we heard some feedback from customers that they are getting rubbing, you know, on their heel and ankle from the inner booty. Uh, we heard that they wanted bigger loops to help pull the shoe on and that it was like a little bit difficult to get on. So we've been able to make um, running changes to the product. But, you know, overall, we've gotten exceptional feedback, which, again, is just really a testament to the work that the team did in all of the testing before we brought the product to market. So, um, you know, that was a check. Um, You know, that's it's always a running, you know, issue that we're trying to improve on. But overall, you know, that that's been fantastic. P&L concerns. So you noted that online footwear retail, the average return rate is about 20%. Uh, you know, we beat that. Uh, we came in at 15% in our first year. I always tell the team that when I put on my finance hat, I'm a pessimist. So I planned, I, I planned for that to normalize, you know, at some point. That was, you know, a good thing. Uh, the, the thing that's been a really challenge, a, a real challenge in P&L management is like one, the initial outlay of cash for ordering. And then two, everyone has been affected by the supply chain. I mean, my wife and I moved into a new house in June, ordered a couch in July, and it showed up on January 15th. And, you know, I've seen <laughs> countless stories about that. But, you know, the, the amount of uh, capital that's tied up in inventory payments instead of working capital on the business has been a big challenge. And uh, the increased cost of shipping, I mean, a, con- a container ship used to cost 2500 bucks and you know, last I checked, it was at least $20,000. So that's put, you know, real downward pressure on margins. And, that's insane. You know, like I, I saw that too. I can't believe it's gone up that much. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's it's incredible. You know, I, I could do an entire hour long show about all the other costs that have gone up related to supply chains. And we're probably going to see increased costs uh, for materials as inflation grows as well. And so, you know, that's been a meaningful challenge. But I talked about culture building before. Um, If you have a culture that is built around managing every dollar, being frugal, 
looking at everyone understanding the PL and how the business works, we can navigate that. And, you know, we have you know, great financing partners who have been supportive of us in raising an additional round of capital to offset some of those uh, impacts. So that's kind of an always challenge, but, you know, we duck, you know, we were able to navigate around a number of the challenges that we discussed. Um, consumer growth. I mean, you know, we touched on before, you know, a lot of our early sales came from one influencer partnership, you know, in particular. And then, you know, when we had uh, disagreements over long run strategy and that person left, it, it created a real challenge, you know, for our business. And I mentioned that we had a fast start driven by the pre-sale and our brand launch in January. And then our sales declined 75% in June, July, and August when we, you know, managed you know, some of the fallout from that departure. But, you know, we had been having challenges in diversifying our marketing because of the attraction to this one channel that had the ability to drive a lot of growth. And that forced us to execute on the fundamentals that we knew had to happen. You know, we had to diversify our marketing mix. We had to bring an intense focus to the consumer journey, understand how our consumers you know, are interacting with our website and guide them to purchase and then nurture them first purchase. So, you know, that was a, a real pain point. And, uh, you know, I, I think that I couldn't have imagined as difficult an outcome as we navigated through over the summer, but it, it forced us to do the things that we know work. And, uh, you know, we showed that we have a team that is able to, uh, is able to overcome challenges and do the right things. And then uh, moving on to team, you know, we went through a lot of the startup challenges um, that, you know, a lot of teams go through. I mean, I can't sugarcoat how challenging it is to lose a co-founder who's responsible for design of the initial product. Um, you know, we lost uh, an influential partner. Uh, we lost um, an early executive who had hired. And, you know, when I look at like themes is that ability to thrive in a startup is just a really different skill set than what's needed to thrive in a, uh, a large corporate environment. I mean, I'm pretty candid. Like, I don't think I ever did that well at JP Morgan or Nike when I was at either of those places. And uh, it's a real different approach. I mean, you know, you look at, you know, this office, you know, that I'm in, we were in a, a, a much smaller place before and we got a bigger place. And, you know, I stayed after hours and, you know, spent three hours moving all the furniture over so that everyone would have, you know, stuff like things don't just happen. And that scrappiness is something that is really hard to replicate when you've become accustomed to all of the bells and whistles that you have in a larger corporate environment. So we went through those challenges, but we're, we've been, like I'd like to say, battle tested through it. And now we have a group that is truly ready to take on all of the challenges we'll see in 2022 and beyond. That's amazing. I appreciate you being so open and honest on that. I mean, even at Growth Head, I had someone that was essentially a partner when I, we started and um, we actually ended on fine terms. We just had very different goals and I, I really mm -hmm. respected he he wanted more of like a the lifestyle that was very family oriented, which I really respect where I, I wanted to be a little bit more aggressive in what I wanted to do. And so we parted ways. And then when I, I have another person that, that came on and I kind of view almost as a co-founder and um, but whenever he came on, we actually had a conversation like, are we aligned on the big picture here? Like, do we have the same values and kind of doing this exercise to to get it right because things can like really it can be a roller coaster right that's what you're signing up for so you want someone where you're on that same page like if you were doing it over again and like assembling a founding team like how would you think through that 
Wow, that's a great question. Um, I would love to find people that either knew previously and had been through both ups and downs with or spend a lot of time getting to know each other before you work. Because it's one thing to understand how somebody responds when times are good, but you learn about how well you'll be able to work with somebody when times are bad. And in difficult situations, I like my co-founder, John Everly. I mean, we initially met, you know, rock climbing in the rock gym at Nike. And, you know, we're not just business partners, we're climbing partners as well. And like, I literally trust him with my life in ups and downs, implicitly trust his commitment to the business, his ability to be flexible in good times and bad. And that just took years of trust to build. And what our last year in business has shown us is that's the kind of trust that's required in a business environment. You know, it's the kind of trust that comes from talking about issues. I mean, I want to give credit also to the team that we have here today. We have a really strong leadership team that's built a culture of addressing issues and talking them through no matter how difficult or um, uncomfortable it's important to do and to do it in a respectful way. And uh, that's what I would look for it for is like people who can really talk through uncomfortable issues in a professional way and maintain commitment through ups and downs. That's really good advice. I had a, a former boss I worked with that was really good at interviewing. And in every interview, he would force awkwardness. He would force people to be uncomfortable and almost like create confrontation to see how the person would respond. And it would be like cringe worthy to sit through, but it was eye opening to see how people would respond. They'd, they'd be able to like really communicate or they'd get really defensive or something. But um, that's really good advice yeah. on figuring out who, yeah. if you're right fit or not. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's even more important in a startup environment. Um, you know, when I was at JP Morgan, the CEO there, Jamie Dimon, used to say problems don't age well. And so I always <laughs> believe since hearing that you have to address, you know, issues. And in a startup, you know, it's even more critical. Um, you know, we operate not in terms of like how many basis points increase in net income did we drive compared to last year. It's like how many months of runway do we have? And if we don't hit our goals, we are out of business. And I'm personally very happy in that kind of environment. But if you lose three months of work because you couldn't be uncomfortable for 30 minutes with a business partner over a discussion, that's a meaningful thing. Like I'm literally wasting your money if I can't have an uncomfortable conversation with a business partner. Like I take very seriously that people like yourself have put money that you could put into like Apple stock, you know, into us. And it is as a fiduciary, it's to you. It's my responsibility to do the uncomfortable things that put our position, our business in a position to be successful. And that can be really hard because it's really meaningful in a, in a startup, but it's what needs to be done. Yeah, I, I used to, oh, I still, I hate confrontation, but being a business owner makes you force, it's a force, uh, forcing function to be good at confrontation real quick. If yeah. not, yeah, you'll, you'll be out of business. But um, I'm from dude, Philly. I got no problem with confrontation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, you're, a, you're, I'm a hard on the East Coaster who sometimes has to dial it down a little bit. 
Yeah, you came out of the womb with confrontation. Um, and by the way, I actually, um, I was going to email you. I was like, hey, I haven't gotten the notification notification from Carta, but I saw I got notified like 13 days ago. So I actually still owe you money for the, the second wire. So I need to, I'll set that All up right. ASAP. <laughs> don't don't so make I'm me a, go to Seattle again. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a phony uh, angel investor this round. Um, I'll talk. But, um, well, Brian, this is awesome, man. This is super fun. I've taken up enough of your time. Anything else uh, you want to give a plug or anything else to think through? You've, you've dropped quite a bit of knowledge here. You know, when you look back, so I did at the, I always like to take the end of the year just to like take a few days off and just like sit and reflect. And one of those days, I just like, I poured a glass of bourbon, I sat there and I closed my eyes and I just thought about all of the things that it took to get our company from, you know, zero, like me riding my bike around Portland, trying to figure out how to get some healthcare professionals to talk about shoes to, you know, four and a half million bucks in revenue, almost 40,000 customers and, you know, a wonderful team. And people are oftentimes, you know, talking about, you know, founders and the founder's commitment. But when I look at all the contributions that have been made to this company, it's really extraordinary. You know, we have over 40 people on our cap table who have invested in our rounds who have allocated money that, like I said, they could do with anything. They could go to Europe for a year and they could just put it in Apple stock, but they've chosen us. You know, we have amazing partners in, you know, our accountants and lawyers, our brand partners, you know, people who took a chance on us, you know, our employees who stuck with us through all of the challenges, you know, over the summer. Um, the people who invest, you know, gave us just amazing wisdom. I mean, as a founder of business, you're just kind of always trying to figure out something you've never done before. And the volume of people who have gone out of their way to support this business is just like truly humbling. And the sense of gratitude I have, I'm not nearly well-versed in English to be able to communicate, you know, that how, how in awe I am of the people who have made this a reality. So just like big thank yous to everybody. That's awesome, man. Um, well, cool. Excited for when we do a round three after you IPO. Um, it'll be a blast. But um, but no, man, Brian, <laughs> this is super fun. Thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks so much, Jim. See you soon. Bye. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out GrowthHit. GrowthHit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, GrowthIt has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out GrowthHit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman.